This morning's scripture reading comes from Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 8, and chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, though we'll be reading just from verses 3 through 8. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of the Lord. We've been looking at the life of Moses in the book of Exodus, and um, we've read in the beginning of this passage in Exodus chapter 19 that the people of God have come to Mount Sinai, and there, at that mountain, they receive the law. Now, most people, when we think about God's law, we view the law as this obligatory thing that we do so that we're accepted by God. Or, on the flip side, we may look at the law disregarded altogether because it's old-fashioned or irrelevant or outdated now. But really, the true biblical historical purpose of the law is a lot more nuanced than that. And so here from the beginning, don't be alarmed, uh, it's not going to change the length of the message, but uh, here from the beginning we have six points, very quick points, one thing that the law doesn't do, and five things that the law does do. One thing that the law doesn't do, five things that it does do. Five reasons that God gave us his law. So first we're going to go into what it doesn't do. The law, what does the law not do? The law doesn't save you. In chapter 19, verses 4 to 5, the Israelites, they come up from Rephidim and they set up camp near Sinai. And Moses goes up the mountain, Mount Sinai, and there God says, you saw what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey, now pause. If you look at the order here, he says, first... I defeated your enemies, then I carried you over here. I, I carried you here. It depicts God as this eagle swooping down, rescuing his people because they couldn't, they couldn't get out. They were trapped. They were helpless. So God swoops down like an eagle, brings them up, carries them out. The Israelites were helpless. They were weak. They were stuck. They were lost. In other words, is, the Israelites, they contributed absolutely nothing to this rescue. God says, you're rescued you're saved. I carried you to myself. You're completely loved. You're completely accepted. Now I want you to obey. Now, that's counter to every religion in the world because every other religion says, if you do right, if you live right, then you will be accepted. Then you will be blessed. But right here, right here in this passage, here's proof. God says religion is what you do But remember, I carried you. God first saved us. He says, I saved you. I delivered you. Now I'm giving you the law. 
That means that the purpose of the law cannot be to save you. It cannot be for you to get to God. It can't be a way for you to get to God so that he'll love you and bless you and accept you because he's already loved you and blessed you and accepted you. Then why does he give you the law? That was the first point. So why does he give you the law? Very quick, see? Five reasons. The first reason is he makes you his treasure. If I want to summarize verse 5, he says, Now if you obey and keep my covenant, out of all nations you will be my treasure possession. In other words, the law of God is given us, given to us to make us his treasure, to make us his treasure possession, to make us his love. Now, of course, he already loves us or he wouldn't have saved us. So what does that word mean? The word treasure is a very unique Hebrew word. In ancient times, when a, you know, kings, they would come in, they would conquer lands. And that means as they rolled through and conquered lands, they would own that land. They literally owned it. In the book of Matthew, when Jesus asked, he gets this coin, and he says, whose coin is this? The people say, it's Caesar's coin. This is Caesar's coin. So then he says, render unto Caesar, because they're asking him about taxes. He says, render unto Caesar's what belongs to Caesar. Why? It's because the coin literally had Caesar's portrait, his face on it. It was his coin. The treasury was literally the private wealth of the king. He literally owned the land and the roads, and he owned all the money and the military and the buildings and the people. He could have wiped it out, destroyed it if he wanted to. But in his own room, he had his own deeply private stash, his deeply personal possessions. That was his treasure. That's the stuff that he kept to himself that nobody had access to. He protected it with his life. And God is saying, with that language, he says, I want to treasure you. I've already lo- I already love you. I'm committed to you. But I want you to treasure me. I want intimacy with you. I want to, sh- I want to be able to hold you close, privately, protectedly. I desire intimacy with you. I want to share in that mutuality and love. I want to see you treasuring my words. I want to see you treasure me, because, and I want you to know that I treasure you. Have you ever treasured anything in your life? In my old days, I used to collect baseball cards. I'm a huge baseball fan, so I collected baseball cards. And most of the cards that I, you know, you, you buy a pack of baseball cards, most of the cards in that deck are useless. They're valueless. They're not very worthwhile keeping. I used to collect thousands of baseball cards. I gave most of them away, threw them away. They got damaged because I didn't care about most of them because I owned them all. But there were a choice few that I kept, a choice few that were very important to me. I kept them in the box. To this day, I still have it. 25 years, they're in mint condition. I put them in these plastic cases, these plastic sleeves. They're kept in that box. They have survived multiple moves and transitions. They have survived, you know, multiple purges. You know, I'm not a, I don't like being a pack rat, so I throw things. I'm good at throwing things out. I just want to throw everything out. I've kept this box, little shoe box, the same shoe box, 25 years, the same set of cards. Now, when I looked at those cards recently, some of those cards are not as valuable as I once thought. I looked at them, why did I keep this? Probably 25 years ago, I valued the person. I valued that player. And they didn't amount to much. They weren't Hall of Famers. In fact, when I look back, I threw away a lot of cards that actually were, the, the people actually became Hall of Famers later on. But the ones that I kept, these were the ones, I mean, I, I kept them in these, pl- some of them I kept them in these plastic cases. And I was like, why did I do that? That person made nothing of his career, you know. But the thing is, but I kept it. It was very valuable to me because I liked the person. 
I don't know why I like the person, but I like the person. I really like the player. Um, it was my treasure. I kept it. To this day, I still have it. It's what I want to, you know, hold on to. And for some reason, it has tremendous worth and value to me. Um, and in that sense, over all those years, think about it. I'll, I'll, give you, I'll, t- I'll share with you something else. When you really fall in love with somebody, now, that's if you aren't into baseball cards, if you don't understand what I'm talking about, if you've fallen in love with somebody, what do you do? When you first meet that person, you know, I, I think I really like this person. What do you do? You look into that person's life. And when I say looking, I'm not saying you Google search them. That's not what I mean, okay? I'm saying you really look into their lives, the things that they really treasure, the things that they delight in, the things that they love. And you want to do those things. Not, you don't do those things out of obligation, Because you value them so much, what do you do? You look into these things, you do a lot of research, and you want to surprise them. You want to bless them. And so when you surprise them, they're so blessed. You can't wait until you see the look on their face when you've done this particular thing for them because that's what brings you joy. In other words, you've wrapped your happiness. That thing may not be particularly valuable to you, so it's not that thing that makes you happy, but you've wrapped your happiness in seeing the joy of the other person, in seeing the delight of the other person. You've wrapped your joy in their joy. You've wrapped your happiness in their happiness. When they're hurting, you hurt. When they're sad and grieving, you're grieving. You're sad. That's what love is. Love is tying up your happiness, your joy, and the joy of another person in their delight. It's not exploitative. It's not, it's real. Real love is not exploitative. It's, you're tying your happiness and joy into the happiness and joy of the other person. And so them feeling warm, them feeling comfort and softness and joy makes you feel warm, makes you feel softness and comfort and joyful. You can't wait to share those things. When God says, I want you to obey so that I treasure you, he doesn't mean so that I can accept you, so that you'll get my love, you'll, you'll earn something from me. In chapter 20, we just read, in chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, God doesn't just all of a sudden just come up with a bunch of rules. He doesn't begin with the rules right away, immediately. He starts out, he says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, who brought you out of the land of slavery. We call that the preamble. Why does he begin like that? On one hand, it's because this is a covenant. A covenant is this life-binding love-binding agreement that God is making. But what God really is saying is, this is not just a contract. I'm bound in my love for you. What he's really saying is, I've listened to your deepest needs. I've listened to the deepest needs of your heart. I've heard your misery. I saw you hurting, and it hurts me. I see your oppression, and it oppresses me. And I see, I've rescued you. I've done research into what makes you ultimately happy. And I want you to love me. This is a life-binding, love-binding relationship. I want you to delight in me. I want you to delight in my faithfulness. I want you to do research. I want you to delight in my integrity, in my justice, in my love. I want you to plunge your joy in my delight. And your joy is going to increase. That's what it means to be his treasure. So the law can't save you. The law makes you his treasure. 
Third, law makes you a holy nation, a radical alternate community, a new society. God sees these Israelites, and he saw them through 400 years of slavery. He saw them through the Passover. He saw them through the Red Sea. He saw them through the desert into Sinai, literally walked with them through this shared experience of redemption with them. Historically now in this area, historically, most of the great cities in this area um, was, were really built around mountains, high places. Why? Because it was a very religious culture. And so they would go to these high places and build a temple there because it was a, an access point to God. Or if there was no mountain or high place, they would build these man-made temples, these ziggurats that would stretch high, almost touching the sky, so to speak, these man-made high places. Why? Because all ancient cities, they wanted a high place where you can access God. We can come to God. We can make sacrifices to God. We can feel blessed by God. In those ways, you would go up the mountain. You would make the sacrifice to God's fertility or to the harvest or to commerce, and you would get a blessing. You would feel blessed. But here, God brings him. He says, I've carried you here to this high place on eagle's wings, he says. Now, just like ancient times, he says, you've come to a high place. But, he says, you're already blessed and you're treasured. Verse 6, why? So that you will be for me a holy nation. Holy means I've set you apart. You're different. You're distinct. God's saying, I'm going to make you into a new nation, a new society, an alternate city. And, And then he goes into the law, and right away we see the differences. He runs through the law. You see the differences right there. Tremendous implications in our lives. We're going to go into that next week. In this man-made city, uh, in a man-made city, you use gods. You, you go up the mountain, you do all the work, you use these gods to improve your life, to enhance your life, to find prosperity. But you have to ascend, you have to do the work. And if you succeed, you're going to be proud. You're going to be exploitative. You're going to be selfish. You're going to be violent. Why? Because you've earned it. You have a right to that. But if you fail, it's going to devastate you. And what's going to happen? You're going to become exploitative and proud, and selfish, and violent. But when you trust that God has rescued you because of his love, out of sheer grace, there's no need to prove yourself. Um, It's the death of pride. It's the death of exploiting other people. It's the death of selfishness. It's the death of violence. There's joy. Joy replaces all those things. Why? What happens? Every part of your life, economic, artistic, creative, family, the way you handle sex, the way you handle money, the way you handle power, the way you deal with your mistakes, the way, we, the way you deal with your failures, your insecurities, the way you perceive your own rights, the things that you have a right to or you're entitled to, utterly different because you're in a new society. You see, salvation is not about God bringing individual people to heaven. That's what I used to think salvation was as a child. You know, it's like a ticket, a golden ticket to become, to go to heaven. But salvation really is, at least if you look at the book of Exodus, it's all over. Salvation is not about God bringing individual people to heaven, but creating an alternate society, creating a new society. St. Augustine, theologian, writer, he wrote a a tremendous book called uh, The City of God. He wrote in the 5th century. And uh, it was in response uh, to what happened to Rome in, in, the, in the year 410. The Goths came in. They sacked the city of Rome. At that time, Rome, the Roman Empire, they believed that their capital was impenetrable. 
because they were the, the greatest civilization and the greatest empire in their time. So for these uh, barbarians to be able to run through, these Germanic barbarians to be able to come in and penetrate their walls and to go into their capital city and to sack their city, the empire was in shock. It reverberated throughout the entire empire. And some of them blamed the fact that the Christians had abandoned their cultural religion. They were a polytheistic society. A lot of them blamed the fact that these people had, the Romans had abandoned their religious culture and had turned to Christianity. And so Augustine wrote the city of God as really a defense, a response to that. And the way he explained it was this. He said, in every city, there are two cities. There is an earthly city, but there, in every city, there's a city within a city. The church is an alternate city within the city. The earthly city is man-made. And so because it's man-made, it's got all the man-made values and qualities. It's exploitative. It's selfish. It thrives on money and sex and power. But the heavenly city, the city within a city, is God-made. And as a result, what was once used for exploitation, sex and money and power, what was used for pleasure or out of addiction in destructive ways, because really the reason why people indulge in these things is because they believe the world is all there is. So when Rome was sacked, it was devastating to them. Why? Because it was all they had. This is all they have, what we see. But Christians are an alternate city, a radical new society. And so sex and money and power in God's city is used in non-destructive ways, non-exploitative ways, non-addictive ways. And it's because you're free. These people are free. They don't need these things to, to make themselves feel powerful or worthy. And so, you know, you have Diognetes, a uh, very early Christian writer. He, he says it like this. He says, you know, we Christians, we share our table with everybody, but we don't share our bed with everybody. Pagans are stingy with their money and promiscuous with their bodies, but we as Christians are stingy with our bodies and promiscuous with our money. Completely alternate culture within the culture alternate city within the city because they're set apart, because they're holy. And that's going to lead us then to the fourth point. God says, the law doesn't save you, right? The law makes you his treasure. The law makes you a holy nation, a holy community, an alternate city. And that leads us to the law makes you, verse 6, a kingdom of priests. Now, what is a priest? A priest draws you into worship. And helps people to see God, helps people to get into the presence of God. You see this in this passage. Moses is the one who goes up, and then he comes down the mountain. He's acting really as the mediator. He's the one that's in between. He's the mediator. What is a kingdom? That's a priest. What is a kingdom of priests? And here's the answer. If you're a holy nation, he's saying you are a nation then, a community, oneness, a community of priests. As a kingdom, as one, you are going to point people to see God. As a community. Now, as a child, I said, I used to believe that God individually would take us, if you become saved, God individually takes people to heaven. Individually. And although it's not less than that, it's way more than that. The, in, the entire intent of salvation is to bring you into a holy community, a new community, a new society, but a kingdom of priests. That means as one body, God sees you. God 
has fashioned you as one body, one community to point people to God. People see the glory of God when they see you. In the Sermon on the Mount, in the book of Matthew, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. What does that mean? What he's saying is that people will see the glory of God when they see you as one city. The church as one city. You, not you individually. You, plural. He's speaking in plural terms. You, plural, are light of the world. That's what he says. You can't be a city as one person, as an individual. In other words, a lot of people can be attracted to the church maybe because they see, I don't know how many people in reality are attracted to the church because they see one good person. I mean, maybe in your life, there may be one or two people in your life that are attracted to church because they see your character. But that's not what God intended. What he really says here is that Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, right before he goes to the cross, he prays for the church. He says, Father, make them one, even as we are one, he says. Why? His reason? Next verse that the world may know that you have sent me. That's his prayer. That was Jesus' prayer. It means that the church is characterized by love for one another, using money together, not individually, but together in radically generous ways, using their talents and their gifts in radically generous ways together. That means whether you're in East Falls or North Wales, whether you are in the city or in the suburbs, in the metropolitan area, we are together an alternate community within the city. And so, yes, you know, if you live a good life, maybe you'll impact some people. But Jesus is praying for the quality of the whole community, the whole body. In other words, if the world is looking in, in this body, and sees power and money and sex and relationships being used in a radical, life-giving way, not selfish, not hiding, not guilt-driven, right? Not in a way to make you feel good about yourself or just feel good or feel pleasure. But if they see that we are using these things in radical, life-giving ways, powerful ways to serve the city, to give, who wouldn't want a church on their block? Who wouldn't want a church on their block? Who wouldn't want Christians in their neighborhood? How does that shape our current practices? First, you can't just come to church. You can't just do that. We always say that here. That church, this place is a place where we come uh, and we worship together for an hour and a half, but an hour and a half does not a community make. That's the beginning, the launch pad for shaping the community. All our values are taught here, but how, does the, how do the values get worked out? They get worked out in community. You have to plug in. And you can't just plug in, you can't just pick and choose the things that you're going to plug into. You have to plug into the life of the church. What is the life of the church? Connect with your leaders. Connect with people around you. Talk, discuss. That's why we have community groups. In our community groups, we get plugged in deeply into the soul of the community. That's where it starts because that's where you engage. That's where you learn the values of the community. That's where you learn what gives life to a community what it means to really serve and have the community shape your life. When you worship together, you share in the same values, you share in the word, you share in the community, you let the community shape your life. I know people that just come and go. They don't just come and go in worship, you know, because that's kind of understandable, right, to some degree, but they come and go even in community groups. They just come in, they just exit right out. And the thing is they do that because really what they just want to taste, they're not engaging, they're not plugging in. You have to plug into the life of the church. The life, that's why you're here. What makes this church 
distinct from every other PCA church in the city and every other church in the city. It's because we still have distinctives, things that we value as a community, values that we share because of the gospel that drive and shape what we do. We have to let those things shape us, shape our lives. You can't just come and go, right? You can't just uh, plug in when you feel like it and plug out, you know, take yourself out. You have to, would you be willing to give your friends, people within your community, an arrest warrant and say, you know what, I'm going to give you a warrant of of my arrest and ask them, do you think I'm plugged in well? Do you have the courage to ask someone next to you that question? Do you think I'm plugged into the life of this church? And have them respond. Have them share with you and tell you. People say, yeah, um, you can ask, hey, I'm involved in community groups. I'm involved in different fellowships. But am I plugged into the life of the church? In other words, unless you're in a community of people who are accountable to one another, to talk about these things, to struggle with it, to demonstrate it, to, to let it shape you as a community, you actually won't obey the law. Now, a lot of us struggle with obeying the law. How plugged in are you with your community? You're supposed to struggle with it as a community. Let that shape you. You're supposed to argue about it in community, demonstrate it in community, practice it in community. Otherwise, you're not going to obey the law, and you can't obey the law otherwise. It wasn't really meant to be obeyed just as an individual by himself. And if you're doing it as an individual and if you're succeeding in obedience, you're still not doing what God has called you to do because God called, he gathered the entire country. Using the law, he was forming a people. If you're doing it all by yourself, great. It's going to make you proud, exploitative, selfish. You have to do it as a community, a kingdom of priests pointing people to God. That's going to take us to the next purpose, And the fifth point, the fourth purpose of the law, is to serve as a mirror. It's to serve as a a way to reveal how your heart really works. It's going to give you a realistic anthropology, a view of man. Every one of us has an anthropology that's shaped by our experiences, our upbringing, our culture. These things shape us and how we view our worldview and how we view life. But the word gives us, God's law shows us how the heart really works underneath all that. Helps you to give a, get a real understanding of how God views the heart. If you look at how chapter 20 begins, it says this, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, let me suggest to you that the entire law really boils down to that first commandment. The entire law, the whole of God's law boils down to that first commandment. Why? Because the fundamental problem of our human condition is that we take things and we make them more important than God in our lives. Think about it. Think of the, the, the first problem in your life that comes into your life, that comes to mind. Think about, the, think about one big problem in your life that comes to your heart right now. The fundamental problem, you know, maybe it's a failed relationship, a failure to love other people, a failure uh, to tell the truth or receive truth well, greed in your life. The first commandment is the commandment on which all the other commandments are based. So it's the problem under every problem, the sin under every sin. I'm going to show you a few examples. First, um, time management. A lot of us struggle with time management, and so we're always exhausted, and we're always on the go. And we feel like we never get a lot done. We, have problem, we feel, like, I feel like I'm running constantly and to manage my time. 
And I feel like I'm not even getting much done. Now, before you had daily planners. You spend a certain amount of money, you get this like daily planner, and you know, you write into that planner, and you keep, that's how you keep your schedule, right? Then we paid for a Palm Pilots. The Palm Pilot craze came in, and then came the stylus, the electronic, the digital pen, right? And you start to use that to record things, and that made it fun and, you know, worked for a little while. Remember that, right? Then you had these free calendars. Uh, then you had these paid calendars. Then you had smartphones. They kind of came in. Then with the, you know, the iPhone coming in, it was cool to manage your calendar and manage your schedule just right at the touch of your fingertips on your phone. Then you have tablets. And solutions are getting very, very expensive, but it's not really solving the problem, right? What's the problem? A lot of people say, well, it's because I'm not very disciplined. Okay, that could be a reason. But the, sin, the problem underneath all the other problems is what? You can't say no. You can't say no because we want to please everybody around us. It's so important to maintain a good reputation in our lives, and that becomes so much more important than God accepting you, than God loving you, than God delighting in you, than God wanting and desiring intimacy with you. Or it could be just this fear of missing out. We just fear missing out. So we need to be a part of everything. We can't say no. We want to feel in. We feel left out if we're not a part of that. And every one of us has a desire to feel in. And yet God says, you're in. You're treasured. I've brought you in. The ultimate in that you need, you have. You see that? Or some of us could be really stingy. And so you say, oh, I I just need to be more generous. But here's the problem, you know, to you, at least functionally. Functionally, we believe that the world is all there is. And so here's how it goes. My kids are the most important thing in my life. My family is the most important thing in my life. We justify, we say, well, God has placed me as the leader of this family, and so I have to be responsible to them. It's important that I serve my kids, serve my wife, serve my family, my home. This is my reality. That's actually what you're saying. This is the ultimate reality in my life, more so than God. And so because they need to be secure, the only way you feel secure is if you have a lot of money. So you need money, you need to get the better job, you need to get promoted, and you're going to work, and you're exhausted. Everyone here is exhausted. You know, and uh, it's because we believe that the world ultimately is all there is. And so the things that they treasure, the things that you treasure, you're going to die for the things that you treasure. And if money is a source of identity and source of security for them, it's going to be your security and your identity. You're going to need more of it. And so money's going to control you. Money's going to shape the way you think. You're always going to be thinking, how can I make more money? How can I get into things that's going to help me to make more money? That's what you're going to do. And that's why you need a new job or a better job. That's why, you know, some of us, it's not even money that's the end. Money helps you to get the girl. Money puts you in certain positions, in certain places in your career where you can help to get the guy. And as a result, we're willing to give up a lot of things for that. You're going to judge people based on their salary, based on their position or their role or their career. You're going to judge people based on their education because at, based on their education, you get a sense of where they are on a monetary or socioeconomic scale, you see. Money stays to shape you. It starts to control you. God says, have no other gods before me. Some of us are serial daters. We date. I don't know if we're serial daters, but we like to date a lot. And I, I don't mean by dating physically or actively in that way. Some of us date in our heads. In every crowd that you're in, you're always scoping out. Is that person a potential? Is that person a potential? Oh, that person is definitely not a potential. Right? That's what we say, right? Um, why? It's because you need a relationship ultimately to feed your sense of worth. If you don't have a relationship in your life, you don't feel a sense of worth. So life feels empty without a relationship in your life. 
And so, uh, you know, you, that's a lot, like I said, that's why we need money. That's why we need to get a job because that's going to put us in certain places to get the type of person that we're looking for. You see that? And as a result, a lot of us are willing to give up our purity, give up our bodies to get for love, for love. When you're deeply loved, God says, you are my treasure. You are deeply loved. The only love, you're deeply loved by love himself. Unless you have the law of God, unless you really understand the law of God, you're never going to see this. You would never even know. You'd never be able to admit it. You'd never be able to even know how your heart really works. The law teaches us that unless you completely surrender to God, you are absolutely helpless. You are absolutely hopeless. You're in need of rescue. That's the fourth purpose of the law. So far we said the law cannot save. That's the one thing the law cannot do. Right? We said that the law makes you, um, we, said the, we said the law uh, makes you a kingdom of priests. Law makes you holy. What is it? The law makes us um, your treasure. And uh, the law makes, is a mirror that shows you who you really are. In chapter 19, verse 7, we start to lead into the fifth purpose, the final purpose. The people respond. They say, we're going to do everything the Lord said. We're going to obey. Now, come on. They just saw the Red Sea. You saw how they were when they got to the Red Sea. The moment they saw that they were stuck, they turned against God. Uh, we saw when they, got, when they were wandering, they got thirsty. The moment they started getting thirsty and they saw hopelessness, they turned against God. But here they're saying, oh, we're going to do everything the Lord commands. We're going to obey. What does Moses do? If you run through chapters 19 through 24, that's God iterating the law, giving the law to Moses. In chapter 24, Moses, he sprays the people with blood because they say it again. We will do everything that the Lord commands. We will obey. They say it exactly the same way. Moses sprays them with blood. Now, it seems unusual. It seems out of place, but it really wasn't. Remember, this was an oral culture. And what that means is when you have a contract in an oral culture, it's different than a contract in a written culture. We live in a written culture. In a written culture, the way you sign a contract is the two parties come to the table. You have two sheets of paper, and then you list out who the, who's involved, what the stipulations are, and then ultimately what happens, the consequences of violating the contract and the blessings of, 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 of uh, obeying the contract. That's what happens. Um, and then two people sign because it's a literal culture, right? It's a literary culture, so they sign. But in an oral culture, because it's not a literate culture, it's not signature-driven, you sign by acting. You acted out a contract. You ratified a contract by acting out the consequences. And so what happens is when you violate a contract— well, in ancient times, you acted out the consequence of violating the contract. Moses is spraying his people with blood. What he's really saying is, if you violate what the Lord commands, then may your blood be sprayed. May your blood be spilt everywhere. And so what happens? Through chapter 24, the leaders of Israel taken up the mountain, and they're brought into the nearness of God. Moses sprays them with blood. And then he takes up the leaders and they ascend up the mountain together and they see God. Well, they see his feet. And it's amazing to them. They say under his feet, there's something like a, like a pavement of sapphire walking with God. 
and God brings them in. You see that? It's amazing. He brings them in. He eats with them, and he drinks with them. In the Near East, you only brought someone in. You only showed hospitality in your home. It is an act of friendship and deep intimacy with somebody. You would only invite someone into your house. We do that today. You only invite someone into your house that you want to share intimacy with, that you want to come into friendship and relationship with. What God is saying here is, I'm bringing you into my home. I'm feeding you. This is the blessing to be near God, the beatific blessing. Numbers chapter 6 in your word of encouragement. That's what he's doing. God is bringing them in. He says, this, I'm treasuring you. We signed the covenant. It's been sealed in blood, literally, and now I'm treasuring you. Knowing that they'd fail. I mean, they're saying, you know, every opportunity they had to trust God, they're violating They finally get to Mount Sinai. God gives them the law, and they say, yes, we'll obey everything. God knows. He knows they're going to fail. He knows they're going to fall apart. And yet, he brings them in. How how does that happen? Centuries later, in John chapter 13, the disciples gathered with Jesus, and they're preparing for the Passover. And everyone's asking each other, you know, Jesus said someone's going to betray him. Who's the betrayer? Who's going to betray him? And Jesus says, the one to whom I dip this piece of bread, you know, take this piece of bread, I dip it into a dish and give it to you, right? Pretty pretty familiar passage. What is he doing? Even down to the end, even down to the end, knowing who's going to betray him, he's sharing in a meal with that person. He's saying, even now, you have an opportunity to come in. Even now, I still want to be intimate with you. That's Jesus. The disciples have gathered. He's still offering friendship, still offering intimacy, looking at the the person who's going to betray him in the eye. Look at the patience of Christ. Look at the love of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author writes, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with full assurance, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty, guilty conscience. What does that mean? Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, he would lift up a cup. And he says, this is the blood of the covenant. This is the new covenant of my blood. What does that mean? On the cross, it was Jesus' blood that was sprayed. It was Jesus' blood that was shed. It was Jesus' blood that was spilt everywhere. Why? Because he got the consequence of violating God's law. He got the consequence of, that we deserved for, for the failure to keep the covenant, the failure to keep God's law. The people said to Moses, we're going to obey. We're going to do everything God says but they won't, and they don't. And yet, God brings them in. Why? Because he made a way. It was Jesus that was cast out. It was Jesus that was crucified outside the city, which means he's getting the curse. He's getting the curse of violating the covenant. Why? So that the people could come in, so that we could be in. So that could be offered to us. And on the cross, Jesus cries out. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is now... I am forgotten, I am forsaken, I've been cut off. If the presence and the fellowship of God, if the presence and the fellowship with God is the face of God, the blessing of the covenant, Jesus got the rejection, Jesus got forsaken, Jesus got the absence, Jesus got the curse of the covenant. Jesus got the darkness, why? So we could be light of the world. Jesus got blood. His blood was spilled. Why? So we could have the blessing of God. Jesus received death. Why? So that we could have the light of life. We get to remain this sweet fellowship with God, this beautiful, warm, love-binding relationship with God. 
in a covenant of grace, sheer grace, not because we've obeyed well, not because we performed well. We performed horribly. We performed horribly today. We performed horribly last week. And yet, we get to come like the elders of Moses and worship. We get to come. When we come and worship together, we're ascending the high place to have fellowship with God, to see him face to face. You know, they only got to see his feet. We get to see him face to face. Why? Because Jesus is the ultimate embodiment of the law, the perfect picture of the law. He's the one that is holy and set apart. God said, this is my son whom I love, which means he is the treasure of God. He is the mediator of God, right? Moses went up the mountain by himself. Jesus ascends Calvary by himself. He's the ultimate picture of the priestly mediator. He's the one that points us to God. He's the one that takes our place. He's the treasure of God. We can embrace the law today, right now, whereas this thing is something that we would be afraid of, that would make us feel guilty, would make us shy away from God. The law can bring us closer to God. We can now say, I desire to be shaped by the law. I desire to be molded into a new community, the community of God, the holy community. I want the law to address the deepest things of my life because the law exposes who I am, reveals who I am, the deepest parts of my heart, convicts us of sin, and yet it does not condemn me. It does not condemn because Jesus had taken the curse. Jesus was condemned. So you can come close to God. You could be his treasure. We said earlier that a treasure is something that you'd be willing to die for. We're going to die for the things we treasure. Who did Jesus die for? He died for you. He died for me. We are his treasure. That's our assurance. When you look at the cross, that is an assurance that you are God's treasure. That's how you know you are God's treasure. And that's how Jesus becomes your treasure. All out of love, sheer grace, out of response. We get to delight in his law. The law drives us closer to God. Friends, when you look at the law, Do you look at it as something that you have to obey to be accepted by God? If you do, you may not be a Christian. You may not be. If you look at it as something that you have to do to earn God's acceptance and it makes you feel guilty because you feel like you're out of God's favor, you may not be a Christian. If you use the law to judge other people because they fail, you see their failures and you say, look at me. You know what that is? You're proud and you're exploitative and you're selfish and you're violent. That's what you're doing. You're using the law as a way to make you feel better about yourself. Even all the while, you fail all the time. You see? We have to look to Christ. The law points us to Christ. Shows us all the ways that we have not lived, that we should have lived. Shows us all the things that we do that we probably shouldn't do, that we definitely shouldn't do. And yet points us to Christ. The perfect embodiment of the law. And yet his blood was spilt so that by contract, you know, when you go to God, when we go to God, it says that Jesus is our mediator and our advocate, our counselor, wonderful counselor. Why? You know why? Because it's the image of a defense attorney, a perfect defense attorney who comes to God and says, God, I died for these people, so please don't hurt them. Even though they deserve to die, I die for them. That's not what Jesus does. As a mediator, he comes to God and he says, you are a just God. And in your justice, you must condemn sin. These people 
broken the law. They deserve to die. But if you are truly just, and I have died in their place, then in your justice, the debt has been paid, and if you are truly just, they are saved. So I'm not just appealing to you out of your love. I'm appealing to you out of your justice. In your justice, in your love, in your character, will you save them and let them go? That is a perfect counselor. That is a perfect advocate, a perfect mediator. Will you trust in a law that reveals? Don't let it turn. Don't, don't, make, don't, let it, don't make it turn from God, make you turn from God. Let it work in your life so that you will turn to God because of Christ. You will love him more. Every time you break the law, you see what he died for. And you can turn, he will make you love Christ more. Let it turn to God more. Let it shape you. And when it shapes you, oh, it makes you so much. You think that you've turned to these other things to increase your potential. This is how you find your true potential. This is how you find your true joy. This is how you find your true freedom. This is how you find deep satisfaction. Will you turn to the law of God and love it this week? Let it shape you. That means you've got to plug into community. Let the community shape you. Will you do that? Let's pray.